So now, uh, our panel today, Grainne Long is Commissioner for Resilience at Belfast City Council. Mary Whelan is a former ambassador to Austria and the Netherlands and the United Nations in Geneva. Stephen Kinsella is Associate Professor of Economics at the University of Limerick and Chief Economics Writer at the Currency News. Professor Gary Murphy is from the Law and Government Department in DCU and Connor Brophy is the Director of Strategic Communications at Teneo. And guys, good morning and you're all very welcome. So uh, I suppose really we, we'll start with, with Marion. Um, Gary, there's a lot of stuff across the papers today. You were looking at Owen Harris's piece in the Sunday Independent. Marion's vibrant voice lifted our hearts and opened minds. Yeah, uh, Brendan, yeah, there's a tremendous uh, array of, uh, of commentary, uh, outstanding stuff, I think, uh, from the Business Post, Nell McCafferty, Colin McQuillia, uh, Sunday Times, Justine McCarthy, Sam Smith, in the Mail on Sunday, a very poignant piece when he was sacked from today, FM Marion supported him. But I thought Owen Harris, at the end of a typically electric, eclectic co- uh, column in the, in the Sunday Independent, got her... Uh, got her just right uh, when he says uh, she was bigger than any particular slot, a cool and fearless striker playing on the same first division teams as Terry Wogan and Gay Bourne. Um, he had some influence on her career when he put her on television for the first time, but he always said he thought her voice was much more suited uh, to radio. And uh, radio, I think, was the medium where most people uh, would know her from. And uh, you know, I was in the studio sitting in this kind of far left spot with her on many, uh, many an occasion. Uh, you had to have your homework done. Uh, I, you'd never be one for going out on Saturday night if you were on with Marion on Sunday morning. And I used to... Um, some work with her on Saturday mornings during the recent referendums, the general elections, local elections, presidential elections, and uh, you'd be sitting when there would be politicians coming in and out, and they would be, they would be scared of their lives because you had to be, you had to be on your toes. I just thought she was, she summed up really modern Ireland so brilliantly and beautifully courageous, uh, and uh, yeah, she's a terrible loss. I think not only to Irish broadcasting and to RT, uh, but to the nation itself, and of course, obviously to her family. Uh, who I offer my my condolences to. Yeah, it's interesting what you say there about about the politicians. I was talking to a guy, not a politician, but who had possibly been at the at the sharp end of a few Marion interviews, and he said, "Yeah, he said she was a good interviewer. I was interviewed by her a few times." He said, "You'd certainly know you'd been interviewed afterwards." <laughs> I thought it was a great <laughs> understatement, Grania. Yeah, you touch on that in your piece as well, Brendan. I, I certainly always felt that, as you said. Um, you, you got an early night on a Saturday night if you were on a panel with Marion and she had a look and I used, used to sit in this seat often facing her and if you weren't on your game you knew it immediately because Marion set very high standards uh, for herself but she also set them for others and you, you were expected to meet, meet them. So I really like that and in a way when you're asked to go on this panel I think she also understood the importance of radio and the importance of national conversation. So I don't think any of us ever were expected to just come in here and not do your work. You had your work done. I like that about her as well as a woman. She, she prepared, she was professional, but she, she didn't feel the need to tone that back. And often as a woman, if you're bright, if you have a view, if you have an opinion, you're almost expected to apologise for it. Marion didn't do that. She wouldn't let any of the rest of us do it. And I think that's probably why listening to the tribute yesterday, so many listeners touched on that point about the importance of an authoritative female voice on radio. And I thought that was really lovely that that came through yesterday. Yeah, and I thought Geraldine Kennedy made a great point, which was that there was a lot of talk about her in recent days as a, a, 
her days as I suppose a woman's broadcaster mm -hmm. and on women's issues and everything but actually she had long transcended all of that and I don't think most men listening would have thought I'm listening to a, a woman broadcaster no they just thought they were listening to a fantastic broadcaster Absolutely I did actually in one of the recent panels I sat on ended up having a, a discussion a robust discussion with Marion and Geraldine Kennedy on quotas and halfway through the discussion, I thought, what in God's name am I doing taking on <laughs> Geraldine Kennedy, Marion Finucane on gender quotas? And we all complete, I completely disagreed with them. They completely disagreed with me. But you always got that fairness. And she gave you that look that said, you've got the space. It's your it's your moment. Argue the best case you can. And uh, and that was what was wonderful about yeah, it. I, I remember, Brendan, sorry, just to interject, being yeah. on with her the day of the Eighth Amendment uh, result and a referendum. And uh, there was a very uh, eloquent young woman whose name I know can't remember from the uh, the um, the retained side, and uh, I thought Marion treated her with extraordinary respect and dignity by by, by also interrogating her on her position. But there was no sense of uh, triumphalism uh, in that uh, you know a very important issue had uh, had been repealed from uh, the constitution, and I was just really in awe of the way she treated all. Uh, her guests, and uh, and though she was interrogating for their uh, for their political positions, and I think she will be a big loss here uh, to RTE. Absolutely, Mary Whelan, what caught your eye in the papers today? Uh, well, just on Marion again in, in the Sunday Times, I liked the Justine McCarthy piece. I liked everything that was written about her as wonderful because she was a pretty wonderful lady but I think she sums it up by saying that she never asked a question to be offensive or hurtful but only to get an answer and I have to say that my strongest memory of her which surprised me when she died was that um, I, what came back to me was the very early programmes in the late 70s or 80s because I was one of those women sitting at home with two small children yeah. and I looked forward to it this was a programme that talked to me like an adult and that wasn't that common a uh, programme that would was directed at women, at grown-up women talking about grown-up things. And she always, she carried that over into other things, but that's what always will, will stick with me. Um, there, the, I, I think that that's something that the tenor of a lot of the texts and the emails that have been pouring in oh, yeah, yesterday and again this morning um, is, is that relationship that a, a lot of women had and how she kind of emboldened a lot of women as well to think differently about themselves and their lives and their position. There's a wonderful one here from Anne McMahon who says, One weekend when I returned home to visit my parents, my mother, in her 70s, looked for me to support her opening a bank account and getting pocket money from my father. I remember she said, Marion Finucane said every woman should have their own bank account or post office account. We had this discussion with my father and he agreed to give her pocket money each week. So I went with her the next day and opened a post office account. RIP, Marion, and, and thank you. I also want to read uh, another lovely email from Brenda Fricker. All my friends knew never to call me until after one on a Saturday and Sunday. I was on her show many times and learned quickly, as all brilliant interviews teach you, that she would always come in with an out of left field question which used to put me on my tippy toes. I knew she would never embarrass me, never frighten me, never force me to name names. And then suddenly it would be over. And just like with Gay, some sort of voodoo had taken place and Marion would have gotten you to say exactly the right thing to fit the question. What am I going to do with my weekends now? I'm still stunned. And that, that's uh, 
Brenda Fricker, Connor Brophy, what 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 are your well, thoughts? You mentioned the word there at the outset, Brendan, and it's it's very clear in the piece by Sam Smith, which really jumped out to me when he talked about when he was sacked from his show on Today FM in 2011, and how immediately Marion asked him to launch a book of interviews for her. You know, as he said, it was an instinctive, generous act. It was a quiet and unshowy thing to do. There's nothing in, in it for Marion to do that, other than that it was decent and it was the right thing to do. You know, I, I can only listening to Gary and, and Grania and yourself talking. One of the things that Certainly that sprung out to me from my own recollections from being on the programme was, look, I mean, I'd grown up listening to Marion. I'd worked here for, for seven and a half years. You come on the programme and you think, God, I better not screw this up. And, and you, you get the look over the top of the glasses. Yeah. But above all, and I, I've been very fortunate to spend a lot of time with, with some great broadcasters, both here and, and in other uh, media outlets over the years in my career as a journalist. But Marion wanted you to do your best. It wasn't that, you know, it was pressure put on you. The platform was there for you and there for the listeners, there for the public. And she wanted you to use it to, to its utmost. And uh, I, I, that, that's something that, that always really struck home with me. She Ernie, had that generosity of spirit. You're nodding very vehemently with yeah, that. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. There was always a sense that um, th this is your space. She didn't own it. She, she, as as you said, she she managed to get the best out of people. Um, and I, I, rem I was thinking back on a number of the interviews <clears throat> One of the so a number of them, you know, really emotional interviews um, and brilliant interviews. But I think she just it was her ability to listen and really genuinely understand what the point of and what the purpose of a conversation was. And I think that's why people relax into it, because you she was never sneery. She would never have embarrassed, as somebody said. Um, and it was that, that really that understanding of the importance of listening. I really think genuinely that's what's great about Irish radio and having lived abroad and lived elsewhere, I don't think anyone does it the way um, the way we tell stories, but also the way we listen to people when they're talking. And I think she epitomised that. Her, her economy of communication was, was something to behold. Yeah, the little, as you say, the little yeah. breath or just the change of tone. You didn't need a 20 word or, or three paragraph, many subclause question. She steered the, steered the thing with just a, a, a nanosecond worth of interjection. Yeah, Stephen Kinsler. Um, I guess the the word that keeps coming up for me is constancy. So she had spent basically every weekend in my ears from the time I was a small child. And um, I think that constancy, it, you know, it was just always there. One of my, I can remember the first time I did this show and uh, the li listeners won't know this, but we're surrounded by the newspapers. Right. And that rustling that you hear underneath the microphones is us moving the papers around. That sound was the sound of the weekends of my childhood. And so what's interesting uh, is, is, is that precise thing and the way that the show and, and because of the way she did it, it became the focal point for um, an enormous number of events. So Nell McCafferty has, has a really, really nice quote uh, in the Business Post and she says, when something happened in Ireland, you turned in, you tuned into Marion, whether it was the Kerry baby scandal or issues like that. Um, uh, I can remember being in the studio when uh, Joan Burton was tarnished as she had been trapped in her car uh, by protesters. And, uh, you, you know, she, she was, all of a sudden we were told, everyone get out because Joan is going to come in. And she's just going to tell Marion what happened. And we were standing outside the door, uh, uh, you know, sort of watching this happen. So it happened and then you, you instantly tuned into her. I can remember being on uh, panels about, you know, general elections, you know, the, the economy and that kind of thing. And she'd say things like, so, Stephen, the fiscal space, I have no idea what that is. Tell us. 
And you'd go, okay, cool. And then, you, but she was speaking for the nation when asking that question. And, and, and she knew where well what the Fisky space was. And you could see underneath sure. the notes, she had the, the, the definition of it printed out. So if I got the definition wrong, <laughs> she was going to tell me. And so I, I think my, my abiding memory, though, is I was in, I lived in Australia. Um, and she had asked me to do a, uh, a, an interview for, for her show asking what life is like in Australia. So nothing to do with economics or anything, just how are your kids settling in? And it was, it was um, I, I got the sense that she didn't want the interview to end because <laughs> she was having it. She was enjoying listening to somebody tell her about um, their life. And I was, uh, I was really, really saddened to hear of her passing. And I think uh, just like everyone else, um, just massive condolences to her, mm. her, her family and her friends and her production team, who, who I, I think are quoted in a couple of places as being just, just crying. I thought, they, uh, I thought Brendan, passed. there was something very momentous happened yesterday when the ordinary people of Ireland, uh, from all classes, which I think is important, started ringing in and texting and even coming out to RT to sign the book of condolences, which is uh, at the uh, the beginning of or the entrance to radio uh, centre uh, here now. And uh, I thought I was very moved listening as I was potting around uh, my house uh, yesterday that uh, people ringing and texting, uh, just uh, telling Rachel of their uh, their memories of her, all different classes. My mother, uh, who was up with me at the moment, was a staunch listener to uh, to the programme, a working class woman from the... Uh, the heart of Cork City, who never went to secondary school, uh, but was very, very smart in her own right. And uh, yeah, we were quite moved by the uh, by the range, and I think that's important. This wasn't just this wasn't a middle class uh, audience or a middle yeah. class uh, persona. This was uh, this was Ireland and all its uh, all its complexities and hues. Yeah, yeah, and look, that 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 relationship that uh, everyone felt they had with with Marion that they did have with Marion is coming across in in. Uh, all the texts and emails this morning. Um, there's there's a good one here from uh, Siobhan Koenig. I checked my kitchen cupboards yesterday for my iodine tablet. Still there. Bye bye, Marion, <laughs> the legend. Uh, but but look, it's little things like this. I think this is how she was part of the texture of people's lives, right? Marion was a legend. I would keep the dreaded ironing time to overlap with Marion's programme in the kitchen on my own. I'd finish the ironing, being more enlightened by great issues discussed. And, and that was it. It was par- yeah. part of people's yeah. uh, routine and lives and weekends, That's wasn't it? it? My mother carries the radio around, like physically carries it from room <laughs> to room on a Saturday and a Sunday because she said to me once, I can't miss a sentence running between a room to get something. So that's for me, that's th- how we all did it. Yeah. Is is there any, are there any other pieces in the paper today that anyone wanted to mention on the Marion pieces? I think we got them on the, the Nell story. Mm-hmm. The story has been well told about that, uh, you know, a report from RTE had said, an internal report had said Marion would never uh, host the Late Late. Gay invited Marion to sit in the, in the chair and Nell said, free at last, uh, great Stood God almighty, free at last. Yes. But that that little, like you talk about the economy of Marion and that Marion just said to her, that's enough now, Nell. <laughs> um, just want to read one or two more texts before we break. Um, Mary Phil from Listole. Brendan, Marion had wisdom and experience. She gave us a unique perspective on our society. She inspired us all every Saturday and Sunday morning. We will miss her. She was the mother figure of the nation who earned respect as gay was the father figure. That's Mary Phil in Listole. Okay, we'll take a break. 
Welcome back. Our panel is still with us. Grania Long, Mary Whelan, Stephen Kinsella, Professor Gary Murphy and Conor Brophy. Uh, we talked about people texting from all over the country and, and uh, Gary talked about people texting from right across the spectrum of society uh, and everything. Another thing that has become apparent in, over the last 24 hours as well is that uh, Marion was clearly, for people all over the world, was clearly uh, the, a connection to what was going on in Ireland, to how the country was changing and all that. I, I, the texts and emails from everywhere, from UAE to Australia and everything. I'll just read you one here. Um, I've been living in Seattle since 2010. Every Saturday and Sunday since I've been here, I downloaded the podcast for her shows and listened to them on a long walk. With the passing of Gay in November and now the last of Marion. I'm losing connections to my youth in Ireland and my connection to modern Ireland. It's a huge loss for RTE for Ireland and for all of us living abroad for whom her shows were a connection to home. Now, let's move on to politics and um, you were looking, Grania, at Mary O'Rourke in the Sunday Independent today. She's saying let the jousting begin. She sets up really well what will no doubt be a very political year ahead. And I think what she also does really well is kind of separate her own, what she says herself, her kind of her political nerdiness from uh, from the public view of how the year might um, might unfold. And she talks about the, the letters and the emails between Michal Martin and Leo Varadkar in the run up to Christmas. But the ordinary person feels that's a bit daft. Why are they doing that? But why do they need to carry on like that um, in her view? So, so I mean, essentially what she does is is remind us just how, how tight things are, although others may disagree, but she points to the polls that showed uh, the two parties being equal and she talks about both parties being pretty well set up, actually, in her view, in terms of preparation and planning. So, um, it, you know, she kind of leaves it there with, with a sense that it's all to play for. Um, there's a lot... To, to, to come um, in terms of how it might play out. And generally speaking across the papers, there seems to be a view, a general view that um, while the parties are equal, it's all in the campaign. And we've actually just seen that in the UK election, haven't we? Where, where actually it was all in the campaign. It was into, in the approach, the strategy and the tactics. Um, and I think that is what's going to make this probably one of the most fascinating elections in the last number of years because it will come down to personalities and it will come down yeah. to the choices that the two leaders take in terms of how they, how they play this out. And is it, this will be a big test for, for Leo Varadkar, won't it, Gary, in terms of is this, his, this is his first campaign leading the party like this as Taoiseach and everything? This is the acid test for him. Uh, he has a few decisions uh, to make. Uh, principally among them is whether he wants to take the risk that Michal Martin uh, will actually support some sort of vote of no confidence in the Dáil, which will, I think, inevitably come... At, uh, at some stage. There's an interesting piece I, on the front of the Sunday Independent by Philip Bryan and then later inside about the what you mentioned at the beginning of the programme about the, the the jousting over property tax. And um, But no more than Leo, I think there is, it's, a, it's a huge election for Michal Martin. I mean, I can't imagine Fianna Fáil would give him four elections uh, battles as, as their uh, leader. He performed extraordinarily well in 2011 when he in many ways you know saved Fianna Fáil from eternal damnation in 2016 going back to Grania's point uh, 2016 election I think is fascinating for what the coming election because Fianna Fáil were about nine points I think behind Fianna Gael a month before the election this is when they should really have called it in November didn't because Joan Burton didn't want him to because of the sort of death of the Labour Party that was sort of slightly imminent and uh, Michal was really good in the election better than in the Kenny clearly and I also remember Leo Radcliffe not being so very good during the 
election campaign when he was a senior minister. And now this is the crucial test. Lee, uh, uh, Lucinda Creighton, writing in the Sunday Business Post, uh, thinks he's well able for the task, as, as he probably is. But uh, election campaigns take on a life of their own. Uh, we'll now have the, the health figures, which look increasingly uh, grim. There'll be all this talk again about the uh, overruns on the uh, children's hospital. Uh, and Fine Gael will try to portray themselves as the party that has, you know, presided over economic prosperity. I think uh, slightly differently to Grown. It'll come down to the Grown game in many constituencies, but by battles for these last seats, Fine Gael have lost a lot of incumbents and incumbency as political science wonks like me would say is usually a good thing um, so it is all to play for uh, and then we will have the inevitable post-election uh, jousting because the no matter what happens I think we did probably within five or six seats of each other and then who forms a, a government Okay and we maybe get on to that in a minute Stephen? I think what's really important uh, is the a lot of the analysis that's come across the papers today is quite personalised it's you know uh, Michal versus Leo this kind of thing um, actually I, I, I think it'll It'll come down to um, uh, not necessarily seat by seat, but issue by issue, particularly and it'll come on down things. To what the election ends up being exactly. about. Exactly, um, but if, if you if you just look at the the difference in in the economy in particular between then and now. So even in 2016, mm. the keep the recovery going thing fell completely flat because people were like, well, where's the recovery? Well, there's no doubt there's a recovery now. The government uh, uh, has a surplus in its, in, in, in its finances for the first time in, in 10 years. Um, we have unemployment falling. It's an extraordinarily positive place to be, given that in 2016, we we had a the, the new politics confidence and supply thing. Everyone assumed that was a recipe for instability. In fact, it provided massive stability. Mm. Uh, everyone, including me, by the way. Uh, and, and we all assumed that this would last a year or two and then be gone. Now, Brexit obviously solidified a lot of that. But if you, if you look at the yeah, major and I think challenges a lot of people felt a stability but where nothing happened. Like yeah, yeah. Well, I mean... We but, dealt with Brexit. Well, it, it, but a, my exact point is something did happen, right? So the tax take is double what it it was uh, uh, in in two thousand. Yeah, that's an extraordinary figure, which isn't is an it? extraordinary thing, right? Uh, the the uh, employment has never been higher. Unemployment is still falling. If you look at the challenges of our economy right now. We're talking about, you know, the children's hospital overrun. Well, like, like the fact of the matter is we actually have the money to build a children's hospital. We didn't 10 years ago. Right? I mean, so I think indeed, this is going to be quite a different election. Will they get the dividend election. of all this, do you think? Does, does it, the economy being the way it is and, and things being good for a lot of people, does that automatically mean they'll be voting this government back in? I doubt it. I yeah. would imagine we'd be different from every other country in the world if it was. Um, no, I think we need an election. Um, I like uh, Mary O'Rourke's headline, let the jousting begin. But I would prefer if it didn't begin until maybe a few weeks after um, Brexit, at least. So maybe March, April. I do think we need to have a sense of when it will be uh, sooner. I doubt that the property tax is going to be the defining issue of the election. So that headline sort of surprises me. I would have thought that the issues are fairly clear, uh, health and housing, um, and really uh, an issue about what sort of society do we want to be. And I think that partly brings in the whole environmental issue, uh, because I think that we have had a lot of publicity about, um, a lot of support, a lot of rhetoric about the environment. But I'm not sure the people have internalised what that actually means in terms of taxation. So maybe the tax discussion won't be about property. It will be about carbon taxes and that, those sort of issues. Well, I, th- I think on the evidence of the last week or two, it, the tax discussion will be about tax cuts. Uh, it, it seems to be how Leo Varadkar 
is framing the tax discussion. Connor, what do you think? But it, it's interesting in that context, though, Brendan, and I think we shouldn't forget that largely thanks to reforms instituted since the financial crisis, it's actually no longer possible really to buy an election. And it, the parties are almost doing each other out of it to try and box off the idea of, of a giveaway budget or excessive tax cuts that, mm. you know, they're, they're jousting, to, to use the phrase of Mary O'Rourke over, well, uh, Fine Gael targeting Fianna Fáil over, uh, over pr spending promises, you know, Fianna Fáil looking back at Fine Gael and saying, well, uh, you, you, you can't cut taxes too heavily and you're going to have to take Leo that Varadkar off But Leo did come out just before Christmas in his end of year press conference and he said, he, he, he stressed tax cuts, pensions up, all that kind of thing. And he said... I want to look after the people who get up in the morning with tax cuts and I would have been able to do more of this in this government if it wasn't for my government partners in Fianna Fáil. So they do, they, they, he seems to be, he's not on the prudent message, is he? If you, if you, I watched that quite carefully and, and it, even in that, he said, subject to available resources, okay. right? So and if, you, if you just think about it, so there, there's a big difference, you know, the, the whole thing about the budget, show me your budget, I'll show you your values, right? So the last budget, Pascal Donoghue delivered it, and um, it, was a, it, was, it was a remarkably prudent budget. If you think that, that the, the finance minister was looking into the next election, and typically our political business cycle is, that's when you get the extra fibres and the extra tenors uh, uh, thrown onto things, didn't happen. Now, Brexit was there. It was an, the obvious thing, but it, it has to be the most prudent budget that we put since Mary Quinn was finance minister. Remember the criticism he got, and, and to Mary's point about the type of society we want. Have you ever seen a finance minister criticised for the tax that he didn't put in into the budget, the, car, the carbon tax? Yeah. You know, mm -hmm. the, the, the green yeah. vote, the sustainable vote is real. We saw it in the in the, yeah. in the locals. We saw it in the Europeans. That's right. Very good point. Yeah. O'Toole wrote a, a really good piece over Christmas about uh, that phrase that the Taoiseach uses about helping people who get up early in the morning, and he he did say, um, and it was an excellent piece. Be careful because um, if you're somebody who gets up at half past five or six to get on a very long commute because you're living in overpaid rental accommodation out in the suburbs of whatever city or town you live in, then you might actually decide to vote differently and you might feel that that really sticks in your crawl actually um, because you're getting up so early because your lifestyle is so tough because the housing crisis is so bad. I mean, I, I you know, having worked in housing for years, I still think it's, I, I, I cannot believe that housing has not been much more front and centre and that, that there hasn't been a, a bigger political price paid across the piece for parties because of the, the kind of litany of, of housing failure in, in, in Ireland. Um, I just wanted to touch also on the, on the, the Northern Ireland angle, I suppose. Um, so Stephen, mm -hmm. or sorry, Stephen O'Brien has a very has a, an interesting co comment in the Sunday Times where he talks about actually that there's a lot of agreement between Michal Martin and, and, and Leo Varadkar, the Taoiseach, in relation to um, the idea of a border poll. And given the week that's in it and given the month that's in it, given that UK will leave the European Union and the transition period will, will commence at the end of this month, but also the talks commencing, recommencing um, in Northern Ireland, I think it's really interesting that there, there does seem to be agreement between the two party leaders that those is the issue, the much, much bigger issue of border poll reunification is something they agree not to touch. And they agree that we make the institutions that are, that are there That's right. we work. We make and them he, work. That's and he right. also mentions in that piece that there are other options here that haven't yet been looked at. For example, a kind of an in, inter-parliamentary group with equal uh, membership from both sides of the border and that that is provided for under the Good Friday Agreement and, and various other mechanisms that have been a bit neglected, haven't they? That's right, exactly. So I, I think that the next few months, and I, I agree with Mary on this point, I think the next few months, there's so much to happen just in terms of the negotiations, the big commencing of the transition period, how that will work, just how that will work in very practical terms, north and south, and people getting used to the idea. And, and there's a very, very important and very, very speedy trade negotiation to 
take place between the UK and the EU, which will have fundamental implications for Northern Ireland. So I think all of that in the mix now makes this election very, very interesting from a, from a, a relationship with the UK perspective. Yeah, Mary. Can I just come back in on the tax issue? I think the people who get up in the morning, and maybe I shouldn't be speaking for them, but I think they're at least as much interested in how their money is spent as, as on whether they get, you know, two euro back a week or something. And that is the crucial issue is how money is being spent, how effectively our health services in which we put a huge amount of money, how mm-hmm. effectively it is functioning. Uh, it isn't that we're not spending money on housing, but how effectively are the policies that we're pursuing? And that needs to be the discussion we have. What are we going to do about the environment rather than a few pennies off here, a few cents off there? Well, in the election of 2016, the Keep the Recovery Going slogan failed and Michal Martin and Fianna Fáil's slogan of an Ireland for all did resonate. And it goes to the question of whether, you know, we live in a society or an economy, to go back to the old Thatcherite uh, view of the world. Um, and certainly green issues are important and we might see a green surge. I don't think it should be overplayed, but if you look at the European and local election results, it would seem that they are set for sort of a Lazarus-like comeback after they uh, lost all their seats in uh, in 2011 after they're a very difficult time in government but I don't think it'll stop them going back into government again uh, and, and would you agree with, with there seems to be a general consensus taking hold now that Michal Martin has been doing a lot more work on the Greens and Labour and that they would prefer to be going in with a Fianna Fáil government at this stage or will they go in with whoever they need to go in with Well I think um, yeah I mean uh, and they there was a view about that Fianna Gael wouldn't support the confidence supply motion if Fianna Fáil had the most seats. Uh, we'll just have to wait and see how it plays out. I, I think Fianna Fáil would clearly, as Fianna Gael would, would prefer some sort of a coalition government where you're not relying on the opposition abstaining and you're kind of like on tippy toes for, for years, as, as happened over the course of the last two years particularly. Um, but I'm not sure the numbers will stack up. If one of the main parties can get... 55 to 60 seats. Now, that's a big ask. That then puts you in a position, you know, the Social Democrats, although I, you know, I, I have my doubts, will they win any more than the two seats they have? The Greens, uh, the Labour Party, certainly, they'll be hoping to uh, build on their, their encouraging local election results. Um, it sounds very sitting on the fence-ish, but it's, um, I do think it is all to play for, yeah. Do, do we agree in general that, uh, with Mary's point that this election will be about what kind of society we want to have. I know it should be, but will it be about that, do you think, Gronje? I suppose it depends on, 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 on what happens. So I always take the view that, you know, elections can come down to, you know, the misspoken word by a party leader at the wrong, you know, the Gordon Brown moment, um, for example, in the UK, uh, that bigoted woman comment. So there's always that. So set that aside, kind of take that as events, given, you know, right. events um, and so on. Um, yes, I, I mean, I, I think when you, when you look at the climate protests, for example, that have happened across Europe, when you you look at the fact that young people have a very clear view that they want to live in a decarbonised economy. They may not use that language, but they know that they want a different kind of life. They do not intend to spend two hours a day commuting in high carbon expensive cars. So, you know, given my day job, I spend a lot of time listening to young people on, on what they want in terms of climate. And they want a very, very different kind of world. And if they decide to make that the issue they vote on, or if their parents decide to make that the issue they vote on, then it could actually reframe. Um, the Are kind people of willing to pay for it, do you think? Do you think if it comes down to the, uh, I don't high think carbon taxes and anything like that? the level of public debate, I think it would be virtually impossible to answer that. Because when you actually say to people, what does that mean? So even talk about electric vehicles, for example, electric vehicles and electric vehicle infrastructure mean giving up physical space on a street for charge points. Okay, 
that a lot of people don't even think about. A lot of people still think you should get, um, if you have an electric vehicle, you should get the energy for free. Why would you get energy for free from an electric vehicle when you have to pay for, for fuel? To encourage so people to have an that's electric right. vehicle. So I don't think this election will will be about, I think it's too soon for it to be about um, those kinds of choices. But I think the next three, four, five years, this decade, if we don't solve cli- the climate change crisis, we've, lo- we've lost the battle. So I think whatever party wins or parties win, they, they almost have a moral obligation now to start to have that public debate and, and so that people understand what's coming. Stephen Kinsler. There's a, a theory in economics called the theory of reveal preference. So you can talk away about all the things you'd like, but what matters is what you actually buy and what you, what you purchase with your vote. And the evidence of the last uh, 100 years is that people say they want higher taxes for nice things and then they vote for lower taxes. That's just reality. Um, if you look at the papers today, a lot of stuff is about uh, Richard Bruton talking about stricter uh, rules on uh, oil and gas exploration. The European Investment Bank is changing its stance to allow more investment in green uh, um, activities. And of course, we're going to talk later about the Australian fires. Um, Australia had a massive general election and they were uh, the Labour Party was roundly uh, 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 expected to win on a green agenda. And Australia, which is which is which we know is highly exposed to climate issues, voted overwhelmingly to put in a party that said we are not going to tax carbon, we are not going to tax climate, we're going to extract more coal from the environment. So I think it's important that we 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 understand exactly where people are coming from and yeah, the issues and, and that they listen, want to vote on. In terms on. of where people are coming from, just in case we veered into a cosy consensus here that we've never had it so good. Our, our texters remind us, OK, one of your guests there is talking about how positive things are. Far too many commentators and policymakers live in Dublin, know nothing of or care about the economic and social morass around rural Ireland, including rural towns and villages. There are two Irelands in existence. Uh, and another text saying, how much of our surplus is foreign investment driven? There may be full employment, but workers are not earning very much. People are struggling to live in their incomes. Uh, talking up the economy, another text says, does nothing for those with poor quality jobs and those with no homes. And there are many in that category. One more. Please look beyond the headlines. Low unemployment does not mean people are coping. A two-tier society is widening. The multinationals are skewing results, giving a false positive. Emigration and professionals is still an issue, as is massive commuting journeys, childcare and healthcare. Now, that's not representative, but it does show us that if, if, if uh, any party tries to come along and tell people you've never had it so good or keep the recovery going or anything like that, that's what they will be met with on a lot of the doorsteps, isn't it? Isn't it, Mary? Oh, yeah, oh, abs- absolutely. Um, and and um, it isn't just in Australia that somebody who loved coal got elected. Donald Trump partly got elected as well Quite because right. he also loved coal. But People have to live with the consequences of that. So I do think that politicians have some responsibility to try and set the terms of the debate beyond the terms of what will get me elected in April, May, June of this year. And part of that debate, and it can only start in an election, but it has to continue after, as I agree with that very much, is what sort of society do we want? It has to be a more equal one, but it has to be one that also looks much more to the to the future of the country, you know, um, rural, urban. Uh, who's going to pay for the for the environmental well, issues? Rural Ireland has always either voted for Fianna Fáil or Fine Gael. 
really, yeah. you know, and that, that's the reality of it. Is uh, there a will, sense at the moment that rural Ireland is a bit uh, disenchanted with Fine Gael? I think there probably is, yeah. And remember Fine Gael have been in power for nine years. It's a long time. You know, two full terms in, in government. Uh, there is a fatigue sometimes sets in. I mean, what surprises me in one way about the, what doesn't surprise me, they're, they're recent British general election is the fatigue about the Tories uh, didn't really work because the Labour Party uh, were led by a leader of in my view spectacular ineptitude in Jeremy Corbyn and that really was in my view the decisive factor in that election uh, we are different here certainly in that no, neither of the leaders has the antipathy that British people seem to have towards Johnson on one level and Corbyn uh, on the other but yeah Fine Gael I mean keep the recovery going with went down spectacularly badly in rural Ireland in particular and they need to be very careful because they're losing a lot of deputies who if you look at someone like Jim Daly in Cork South West even Michael Noonan himself in, in Limerick and they're losing a lot of deputies who are in tune with what's happening and uh, you know I think there are big risks for them and Fianna Fáil tapped into that previously whether they can do it again and I think we might see some green uh TDs come out of uh, rural Ireland for maybe the first time ever uh, because people are concerned with uh, with qualities of quality of life issues. Yeah. Now, Gurney, speaking of, of rural Ireland, yeah. you're looking at that story in the Sunday Independent uh, about a, a kind of a revealing story about homelessness in rural Ireland. It was. So th- this, this piece shows the number of homeless households who use a post office as their mail address. So why would you use a post office as your mail address if you don't have a permanent home, a fixed abode and so on? And these are household figures and it shows at a county by county level the number of people who are not currently um, deemed officially homeless, so they haven't presented as homeless. Um, so they're, they're not included in the official national statistics, so they're additional and Focus Ireland call them hidden homeless and, and it appears they most certainly are. You know, 194 Households in Galway, for example, have registered um, with on post for a, 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 an address. So to those points that your listeners make around either the, the, the rural urban divide or just what's happening locally, these are the kind of stories that I think will really resonate with the public. But I also think they're the kind of stories that will come up in an election campaign because we have not solved some of those very basic, you know, what, what do you need to get right as a government? You need to get the economy right, you need to get health and housing right and you need to get education right. And, and, and housing remains a very, very big story and a very big issue. Yeah, I'd add a couple of things to that. There was a story that jumped out at me from the front page of the business section in, in the Sunday Times, kind of building on from that point. And it's Flat Developers Plot a Building Blitz on Dublin and Cork by Gavin Daly. It's the lead business story in the Sunday Times today. Um, and it talks about around 5,000 new apartments, um, you know, plans being, or developers seeking plans to be fast-tracked in various locations, particularly in Dublin and Cork. There's a number here that is quite frightening in some ways, which is the property sources said an average apartment costs about €350,000 to develop. That's to build it. So to buy that, and realistically, these are not going to be bought by homeowners. They're going to be yeah, rented. They're, they're saying it's for um, the rental. Th- this is, for many people, it's the household of, of the present, but it's going to be the household of the future. It's going to be a rented apartment. Um, I, I know we talked about the, the property tax, and maybe property tax won't be a central issue in the election, and, and it probably won't be, but it's going to be a central issue in our lives for many years to come, and it should be, because yeah. property is the main source of wealth mm-hmm. in this country. Mm-hmm. We hear a lot of talk from the left about the need for a wealth tax we have a wealth tax. It's called a property tax. And how we tax property fairly, how we find a way to do it fairly, and I know the old saw that the only fair tax is a tax that someone else pays, but also how we build wealth outside of property for people who, let's be realistic here, many of whom are never going to own a house at those prices. But the left are against property tax in Ireland, uniquely. But in favour of a wealth tax. Mm. Uh, I mean, uh, but just to go back to that figure, okay, if, a, if an apartment is 350000 
uh, to, to develop and a developer or a real estate investment trust or whoever it is who's the investor in there is expecting a, maybe a 4% yield on that. Can you imagine what the rental charge on that property is and if you're either a young person or a group of young people or a family with children that is out of your on an average wage that's out of your reach so what are we now saying as a country in terms of our economic and what's our growth strategy our growth strategy if it's dependent on that our growth strategy is not going to work because we're going to end up with deepening levels of inequality and we're going to end up with a situation potentially like London where you have an urban centre with only very wealthy people to live there and you do get to a point where economically that stops working and that's a really big challenge. Okay, I think, but then over you've got decade. to be careful about Stephen Kinsella, don't you? What is the answer to that? If that is what it's costing in the market to to build these apartments, do we start? How much do should we interfere with the property market? Well, the a property market is is one of the most interfered with markets uh, in in the world, um, and so so we don't really know what the true market value of these things are. The truth about it is if you're building 5,000 apartments in, in built up urban areas, it's not the cost of the bricks or the labour that's the difficulty, it's the cost of the land. Um, and that would actually be uh, property w- properly well solved for if, you, if we had a proper site value tax as opposed to a property value tax. But um, ultimately, ultimately the, the government has to provide directly uh, a, a form of not... Not social housing, but public housing, and the difference the difference is uh, you you need housing that will accommodate uh, middle and upper class people as as well as working class people. Um, it it works all across Europe. It's a very very positive thing. The reality is that so these, hang on, how do, how does this work? The the, so the way the way that it works is you, there's a there's a housing trust. The housing trust uh, manages the house so that, so that it never uh, the apartment that never gets degraded. Um, it, you both both households, let's say a rich one and a poor one. They both pay the same rent, um, but the poor one has its uh, uh, the difference between what it can afford and uh, what the market rent is uh, subvented by the government. And what that does is it means that the housing stock is never, ever degraded. It's a very good thing, but it also means... Okay, you can't people, buy it. Okay, but that, that is social that, housing. That, that, That's, so yeah. I'm, I'm a director of a social housing housing association in London and we will provide a thousand homes this year and a portion of them will be social housing and a portion will be affordable housing and we'll have shared ownership and we'll have key worker housing. So in other words, what you do is you look at all of the different families you need to help and you build, a, a, we will build um, a, a proportion of those for sale in at market level and the, the profit we get from that cross-subsidises, and I'm sorry for that technical jargon, but essentially yeah. the profit from that goes in to build the social, the affordable housing, the key worker housing. And that's how it works. I mean, that London is, is the toughest real estate the, in Europe. There's an issue that arises here when, when people try to do those kind of mixed developments, mm-hmm. which is that the people who are paying uh, full whack for the property, maybe well-off people, don't want to live in those mixed developments a lot of the time. And and that so that if the culturally if that is the case then that's an issue that we have to deal with and and I think that's where planning authorities have to be really important and local political leadership has to step up here and say if we really want to solve the housing crisis and somebody said it earlier you know we can't take a not in our backyard approach to this. So in other words you you build you design it you build beautiful places in London that is what you've described Stephen is absolutely right but it's not radical anymore. That's what housing, that's how it works in cities all over Europe uh, and we have to realise that if that's the, the kind of housing system we want that model works. Well the difference in the model that I described and the one you described is in you, in the one that you described some portion of the uh, rental uh, uh, units are actually given for ownership. In the model that I described no one owns it, the state keeps it in, in perpetuity. One of the issues that we had in the past and was why that people well off people get involved in because of the location. Get involved in because like of the that. location. You'd, you'd like to live in the city centre of Dublin, you'd like to live in the city centre of Cork, Limerick, Water 
photographer and so forth. So you, you want to have this. The size of our families, it's going way, way down. We're n the average household size is falling in Ireland. The, the, appropriate, the appropriate house or, or accommodation that we need is not a three-bed semi-D anymore. It's much smaller. And I don't think our um, notion of ourselves has actually caught up to that, as evidenced by the but, uh, recent but surveys. Mary? Look, I think there are very ma many good examples, um, even in Ireland, also in, in Britain, all across Europe. Vienna, I think, has 25% of its housing, yes, yes. public housing. Yeah. And it's, it's, um, they're mixed developments. Mm. You know, it's all interspersed and everybody is very happy with themselves, and, as they should be. But I think there is another question here, as evidenced by your caller. Why does all of the development have to be in Cork or Dublin? Um, you know, there are people... As, well, I guess as that's where said, people want to live a lot of yeah, the time. That's people, where the jobs are increasingly in, in the cities, isn't some it? Some people are commuting at five o'clock or half five in the morning, two hours to Dublin from Carlow. Why aren't the jobs in Carlow? Why aren't the jobs in Waterford? You know, th this is one of the issues. We have tried to have... We've had forced regional development. Maybe it's time we had real regional development. And instead of bringing people through uh, badly bad roads to Dublin, why aren't we bringing the jobs down to Carlow, to Waterford, well, to Oxford? Okay. There are okay. two issues. One, of course, is that the multinationals, when they come, want to go to Dublin or they want to go to Cardiff, they want to go to the big cities. And two, and I don't disagree with either of Stephen or Grania's view, but the reality is, culturally, Irish people like to own their own homes. They always wanted but, to but buy property failing, rather than to rent it. We're failing to do it. it. And we, there's been permanent oh, no, housing I don't disagree with that, but I'm just saying culture, that's so what we, 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 have, we have failed to solve it again here today. And we <laughs> let that keep going around in circles. Gary, be, um, just, just before we come up to the news, um, you looked at a kind of an um, extraordinary story in the Business Post magazine today, which is quite yeah. brilliant in one way. Yeah, I, I, quite brilliant. All Politics is Local by Aileen Blaney, who went to uh, Varad, uh, which is the ancestral village uh, where the, uh, the Taoiseach's uh, family come from, his father Ashok. And it's a uh, quite brilliantly evocative piece. Uh, she talks about the quiet humility of the, of the people there. But uh, a couple of things did strike me. Uh, one is that... Uh, when uh, Mr. Bradker, Leo's father, goes back, he likes to stay in the uh, in five star hotels in Goa. Uh, and then there was no, a this is according to his according cousins to his, there. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And secondly, there was another view that uh, when Leo himself would visit India uh, over the years, he would want the hotels to be clean. Quote. So when they came, they would stay in good hotels. But it's uh, I would describe it as uh, warm, um, but with uh, with a slight edge uh, to it. Um, and um, You'd wonder, you know, when, when we, what we discussed earlier, the uh, the personalisation of politics in Ireland is uh, is coming back. If the election would be Leo versus Hall as 30 years ago, 40 years ago, it was uh, Garrett versus, uh, versus Charlie. Yeah. And now, swimming. Um, Conor Brophy, you were, you were looking at that story in the Sunday Independent. Teenage boys and toddlers most at risk of droning. And, and essentially the point is they're saying everybody... Yeah, it's, it's the recommendation is to report from their study by the Royal College of, uh, of of Surgeons. But one of the recommendations is that there should be state subsidised swimming lessons, which I have to say is something that makes eminent good sense to me. Absolutely. I mean, we live on an island. Island we're surrounded by water. You know the the risks to uh, particularly to a toddler falling in water. And I remember myself thankfully be, having the means to to pay for swimming lessons for my daughter from a very early age, from three months, and she says the best investment we ever made in terms of peace of mind. And I can tell you uh, from one example, when we were on holiday in Portugal, and she did actually fall into a swimming pool thankfully was able to 
float for long enough. Now, you're, you're only talking a matter of seconds, but, but that's all it takes. Yeah, and very silent as well, yeah. apparently. Gronia? Well, uh, look, in a previous life, I, my last job, I ran ISPCC Childline, so this is not a comment from them. It's a comment, personal comment, but, you know, there were two issues that, that we really, really always worried about at certain times of the year, and swimming was one of them, water-related safety issues and farm-related safety issues. And I think, Connor, I think that piece is, is a really good piece. And, and the idea of the state stepping in and, and actually helping young people to stay safe in swimming on an island makes absolute sense. Stephen? It's a policy quick win. Um, so it's one of these things, we're talking about extending free GP care for people under 13, we're talking about all these things. Uh, a lot of the time uh, people want to see the state acting for them and with them and that's yeah. this is a perfect example. You I, think I it's the kind of thing would capture the imagination? I just, I just think in terms, of, uh, in terms of something that people can say, look, this is the state acting for me, helping me, helping my kids, we should absolutely do it. It's, it's, an, it's a no-brainer. I think it's, okay. it, it, I would love to see it in all the programmes for government. All right. All right, thanks, guys. Let's take a break. RTE Radio 1. OK, thank you, Tommy. Our panel still with us. Grony Long, Mary Whelan, Stephen Kinsella, Professor Gary Murphy and Connor Brophy. I just want to read you one more text here. Someone texted into 51551. My mother moved in with me while she was undergoing chemo back in April 2008. The first morning after she moved in, we were having breakfast and the iconic Marion Newley interview came on. This interview, while very poignant, opened up the conversation around the possibility of my mother's death and gave my mother permission to honestly say what she felt. It was as if Marion was interviewing my mother. We started from a different place because of that interview and I'm so grateful for it. My mother passed away seven months later. And uh, you know what, I think even if you weren't in that position yourself, I think that interview, for, for me, certainly one of the most profound pieces of radio I ever heard. I've never... Never, you never looked at life or death quite the same again after it, did you? It was extraordinary. Uh, now, the Middle East is back on top of the news agenda this weekend, of course. On Friday, a US drone strike at Baghdad airport killed, among other people, Kazam Soleimani, generally agreed to be the second most powerful man in Iran. David Murphy is a lecturer in military history and strategic studies in Maynooth, and he joins me now. Uh, you're welcome, David. Uh, David, uh, tell us a bit first about uh, Soleimani. He's well. He's an interesting, or he was an interesting character. Um, surprisingly, I think when you consider the potential of what he he, he commanded, the the Quds organisation, um, very little known about him to the, to the general public. Uh, obviously, intelligence agencies in the West for the last decade have been trying to compile uh, a file on him, a dossier, and I'm getting no more about him. Uh, but uh, considered as a, an extremely dangerous operator, uh, and as I said, uh, so tell us about Quds first. Yeah, maybe. Quds, yeah what was that? Yeah, I mean, I mean, Quds is, is, is essentially it's it's a, an unusual operation, maybe from a Western perspective, in, th- in terms that it's a it's an, a CIA type intelligence operation, but it also has integrated special forces units. Uh, so all in all, you're looking at over 120,000 uh, personnel. Uh, so there's considerable potential there to do mischief, and it is and operating in a lot of countries. It, it, it's it's brief essentially is to spread the, the 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 Iranian idea of the of the Islamic message outside of Iran. So you will see it operating. It will train and equip Hezbollah in Lebanon. It will train and equip Shia militias in Iraq. Uh, and then obviously it was active recently in the local, in the 
the Syrian civil war against ISIS. So it's it's brief so, so, is external. So so and this we get into the confusion here of who's on whose side. So they would have been fighting mm-hmm. against ISIS with with the Americans quite quite recently in, in a sense. Absolutely, they were running. There were there was a parallel system, so to speak. The the Americans were fighting ISIS and and the Iranians through Hezbollah and other Shia militias were also fighting ISIS in in Syria. Uh, so they were running parallel. And then on the other hand, in in Iraq they would have been uh, operating directly fighting the Americans. Absolutely. I mean, during the worst years for uh, America and uh, after 2003, uh, when the insurgency developed and you had Shia militias fighting the Americans, uh, they were also backed by the Quds organisation and ultimately commanded by Soliani himself. So so a massively powerful guy right across the region, really. I saw somebody suggest that he was probably more powerful than some heads of state due to the, the the scope of his reach i think so i mean and he has he he because he's he's the the Quds organization deals directly to uh, the, the the ayatollah in iran essentially the the iranian pol- political system and the iranian president is not in his chain of command so he was dealing directly with the, with the ultimate power leader. all yeah. the time yeah. uh, and that's why they got such massive resourcing and i notice as well that like even among people who are against the regime in, in iran he seemed to be this kind of almost mythical kind of popular figure for them. Like that, even people who are out, out, might have been out protesting in in recent weeks are mourning him. Absolutely. I mean, in the last, especially say in the last five years, he was coming more out of the shadows in Iran itself and engaging in politics and local issues. Um, so he was he was increasing his his profile as a popular figure. Um, and again, people who had who it was it was an easy fit for people who had difficulties with the Rouhani regime then to be offered this alternative public political figure who was not immersed in party politics in Iran. So it was an interesting kind of uh, transition he was doing. Okay, now this is a huge question. Why was he targeted specifically? Why was he targeted now? Well, in the, in, in the immediate sense, I mean, a lot of people are saying that this is, this is merely... Uh, an exercise by Trump to, to kind of and okay he did sanction this operation but I think in immediate operational terms he was picked up on, on, on the, the intelligence radar so to speak uh, moving from uh, Iran into Syria in the last week into Syria from Syria to Lebanon and then back into Iraq so they knew he'd been orchestrating unrest in Iraq for the last basically six months or so uh, the, the, the American intelligence story is that he was about to tee off a series of attacks yeah. imminent and sinister we're told but yeah, but yeah. it seems to be vague on what that intelligence was yeah, I mean it? it's been suggested kind of like uh, attacks on uh, American contractors American civilians American embassies which falls within the the, the, the Quds brief they have done this before this is this, this is the kind of thing you do so that is what's being suggested but we haven't had any real detail on what the plan was as, as, as they saw it Okay. So and like they they had they, they've thought about taking him out before, haven't they? Various, yeah, he, they, they, they? The Brits thought of doing it before, and they've they've been watching him for quite a while. Yeah. He's been on. He's been on top of very high in this kind of list of kind of dangerous persons of interest to be taken out of possible. Um, and he was unfortunately he was he was being tra- uh, trailed uh, essentially from the moment he left Iran last week, and then when he arrived back in to Iraq. Um, he was taken out near the airport. And, so. and, and sorry, Brendan, did, did, didn't he make his name during the 1980s Iran Iraq War? And isn't that why he has some sort of uh, hold over the whole of the, the Iranian nation, so to speak, as a kind of a you know devil make care sort of uh, character yeah, involved in various military missions? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I think he didn't. He put together his own. Um, 
battalion, basically, didn't he, and headed off to war? Off. I mean, he's been... I mean, what do we know about him? He's born in 57, which is in- interesting, actually, his successor, the guy who was, who was taken over from now, born the same same year, to the same age. Um, but born in 57, joined the Revolutionary Guard immediately on the Revolution in 79, and then comes to prominence in the... Bring, you know, basically getting together an ad hoc unit during the Iran-Iraq War, which I'm sure we all remember around the table of the, the way it dragged on in the 1980s was a pretty awful, bloody affair. Um, but again, the Iranian system very good of identifying people in that, uh, either as, as people who become martyrs or people who have become heroes, and then all of a sudden they're on uh, the public conscious. Now, obviously, the world now waits with, with bated breath slightly to see uh, what Iran's response will be. What what do we think the potential responses are? Well, I think it's, in some ways it's it'll be more of the same. I mean, I, I think in, in the medium and the short term level, we can expect, I think, cyber issues. They will mount cyber attacks uh, in various locations. I think we can see that. We've seen in the last... Have 20- they quite a sophisticated they have, mechanism? Yeah, it, that, basically, yeah. based within the Quds organisation, they have they can reach out. So, and they have done in the past, so they will. Um, I think we can see an increase of activity as we've seen in the last 24 hours, like mortarings and rockets, rocket attacks. But the kind of low-level stuff that yeah, was going stuff. on anyway, yeah, wasn't it's, it? It's been happening anyway, kind of, um, I think, it, so more of the same problems in the Straits of Hormuz and et cetera, et cetera. Um, I think when you look at his place in the security architecture, the state architecture in Iran, um, they will have to tee up some very big statement for to get the world's attention. Uh, I don't think they're going to be content. The Iranians will not be content just to do more of what they've been doing. Uh, they will want to make okay. a statement about it. You think this. it's spectacular here? I think they'll be looking to make a, 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 something that's equivalent. On American soil? American soil. I mean, and that comes down, I mean, they have operators that can operate internationally. Uh, they obviously are strongly linked and a, a major backer of Hezbollah, and Hezbollah is an, an international organisation now with strong presence in Latin America, America, Canada. So... There's potential there for spectacular on American soil. So would you be worried now, are we on the brink of... of um, I saw Richard Haas saying that if there is a war here, it'll be a war without territories. The whole the mm. whole world could be the uh, could be the theatre for this war. Are you worried we're on the brink of some kind of war? We seem to be... We're in a, a peculiar situation in that the lines between peace, peace and war have become totally blurred in the last 10 or 20 years. We have these conflicts that go from being low spectrum to high spectrum all over the world. Nobody is actually... De- formally, legally declaring war on anyone. But this conflict exists and it morphs and it manifests itself in attacks on city streets or it manifests itself in mortar attacks in Baghdad or targeted assassination. Um, so the question is, there's, there's a lot of this negativity in the world. Will it inter- intersect all at one point or will we just have a continued, uh, an upgrading of this kind of like level of conflict across the world? Is the sense that Trump has escalated things here slightly from that, that work-a-day kind of um, conflict that we were seeing? This is a huge escalation. I mean, you imagine how the Americans respond if somebody reached into their system and took out their Secretary for Defence or their Assistant Secretary for Defence. This is a huge escalation. Um, and I think even how the the, 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 the landscape is immediately changing in in, uh, in Iraq. I mean, the Iraqi president actually attended the, the, some of the funeral rites, uh, which is a major signal, uh, and now wants to debate in the Iraqi parliament uh, asking the Americans to leave the country totally. So it's... You could actually argue this is backfiring them totally in terms of their presence in Iraq. Okay, Mary Whelan. 
I think this is a huge challenge for Europe. Uh, we're much closer to Iran and the <coughs> Gulf of Hormuz than the Americans are. And I really wonder, uh, does Pompeo or, or Trump or the, those others who work in the Amer- American administration, have they any sense of where they are going to next? He seems to act and then expect everything just to go back to normal again. He has said this is to prevent war, that this is not war. And Europe has been wringing its hands a lot in the last few days. Obviously, it cannot encourage what has happened. It's deeply destabilising, but I think Europe has to do more than wring its hands. There's a very interesting article by Dan O'Brien in the paper today, which says that one in every seven barrels of oil coming from the Gulf of Hormuz is coming to Europe. Um, So what are we going to do? What levers do we have Uh, Who does Trump listen to? Because in many ways, the ball is in his court now. And I I just find it extremely worrying. There's there's another interesting point Dan O'Brien makes as well, which is that the US now technically is not dependent on anyone else for oil. They're exporting as much as they import. Mm -hmm. So they actually don't need oil from that region the same way we do in Europe. So presumably that's playing into Trump's tactics here as well. But he has had this obsession with Iran for a very, very, very long time. If you contrast the way he has dealt with North Korea and Iran, it has been quite extraordinary. He came into office. There was a very good um, programme between the basically the EU, Russia, China and the US to ensure that um, Iran was um, embarking on a policy of denuclearization. Yeah, but Trump, argue, but Trump argued that it, it didn't stop their missile program and that it didn't stop their activities across the region, which which is exactly what we're talking about today. But two of the, <coughs> it wasn't meant to do that. It was meant to to deal with one very dangerous thing, and the way you solve most problems is by taking them piece by piece and okay. gradually breaking okay. it down. And there was no logical reason to yeah. to tear up that program. That was an emotional. Mm. type of response, I think. But what it has done, it it has discredited the EU because the EU was a staunch part of that that whole negotiation. The Iranians did keep to the terms of that deal. The deal said nothing about missile programmes. Mm -hmm. The deal said nothing Mm -hmm. about what they were doing in Syria or Yemen. Um, And uh, basically... He got away with it. Now, Trump does seem, in fairness to him, to be suggesting, as you said, he said, Mary, uh, I'm not looking for war here. I'm not looking for regime change. We know that Trump is, well, up to now, has not been interested in getting involved in, in wars in these places. You know, it's America first and all that kind of thing. But is there is there a, is there a question here that Trump is actually trying to force them to the table? Because he, he made that tweet about... Uh, what did he say? He said uh, Iran has never won a war, but it's never lost a negotiation. Is there a place for diplomacy now, do you think? Well, it would be a very unusual way to get to a table to take out the person who has uh, most embodied your prestige, um, as Iran would see it. The Iranian economy is in a very bad place. The American sanctions have done that. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, one thing that this will have done, and there was talk about that there hasn't been much op- opposition in Iran to the response, and that is because the Iranians are a very patriotic people and an attack on this man has, has actually unified the country. So I cannot see uh, them then stepping back and saying, oh, let's go to get to the negotiation negotiating table with a partner who has torn up the last agreement that we were keeping with them. Okay. This is where the, the, the Michael Clark has a very good piece this morning <coughs> um, where he's talking on those points, Mary, around tactics versus strategy. And at the moment, 
this is very tactical. Now, I would say there's a, there was an element of inevitability about this. You know, mm. it, this has been escalating for a while. Um, but nev- nevertheless, where the strategy will play out and how it will play out, I think politically it's going to be really interesting to see how this plays out in the US. Because on the one hand, Trump has been really clear, I do not want to take part in foreign wars. That's not our place in America. But on the other hand, when the Republicans, um, you know, beat the military drum in the run-up to an election, it tends to fare well for them. So I, I just, I don't know enough about US politics, but yeah. having watched... You'd Trump, imagine it could go quite badly, go Tim, if there, if there is a complete mess going on there for the next year and there's American soldiers being killed and whatever. That's exactly right. And and I suppose, of course, this all deflects from, or in the press, it deflects from impeachment just after the holidays. And that would have been the number one story this week in the US um, had it not been for this. So so there's, a, there's an element of all of that. But to go back to the point about what this means for us, what it means for Europe, what it means for Ireland, that po- the two key points here where I feel we are really, really exposed is, first of all, in terms of cybersecurity. And when you talk about spectacular attacks, actually, and I completely agree, um, what what could be a spectacular attack is a, a cybersecurity attack on a city, um, either at a European level or indeed at a US level. Now, Atlanta um, the city of Atlanta faced a major hack, I think, three years ago, which which brought its economy to its knees. So cities are now very exposed to cyber attacks. Mm-hmm. And the second issue, which which Mary pointed to, is is Europe's um, exposure in terms of um, just how dependent we are on importing of fossil fuels and 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 just how 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 um, the Middle East remains a really really important, uh, uh, I suppose, uh, uh, area for us in terms of importing of oil. So they're the two areas that I think I think this could change everything in 2020. Frankly, this first week, um, because it could bring geopolitics to the fore so much. And I think Dan O'Brien's piece is really strong on that. And you know, Russia's reaction. Turkey's reaction, China's reaction to this will be really important. So all of a sudden those issues like Brexit, like our domestic election will be important. But actually the geopolitics of oil and energy might well be the issue that defines this year. You see, I wonder though if there isn't this kind of consensus across a lot of the media here that Trump is the bad guy here, that we shouldn't have provoked this, that he should he should what, just let, let Iran keep poking and poking and poking that that a show of strength might have been necessary in this situation but this is a particular show of strength um there is many america is so strong there are so many ways it can show its strength and it has been in the sanctions it has it has on iran what it is is doing to their economy is really quite dramatic in the last uh, year. Uh, this man was certainly not a good man he provoked disruption and misery all across the region and further afield. He could have been taken out. Uh, I don't even like using that term about Mm. another human being, but he could have been killed many times in the past. This is a very, very provocative uh, attack. And a provocative attack is intended to provoke. So what are they intending to provoke and why? That's what you'd have to ask if you were dealing with rational actors. Yeah. But is it just... You don't think we are dealing with rational actors? No, but sometimes Mr. Trump, and I don't think everything he does is necessarily bad, but sometimes you do wonder, is it just the impeachment issue? Um, Mm. Is it just someone... No, he was presented with 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 an option of many by his security advisors, who I I hear people saying, oh, the neocons are back in charge and everything, but but it was one of the options. Do you remember a few months ago after the trouble in the Gulf of Hormuz that he he actually said, and there was a US drone, I think, um, shot down down over Iran, and he actually put them on warning, which which is what you'd expect. You put them on warning, I'm going to do this, you do it, and then you sort of say, and you do that again, and I'll do even worse. That I can understand. That's a managed e- escalation. 
this but time he did not consult with his Mary, allies. Wasn't there a sense that time that, that Trump might have backed down and that oh, he, he might be still completely. humiliated by that so he needed to overcompensate this time? Yeah, completely. Yeah, my, my view was that these ideas that he he's doing this for domestic political purposes, I, I don't really buy into that uh, narrative uh, because he knows his history. In 1991, George Bush, of course, had a big win uh, in Kuwait and he was turfed out 18 months later with um, in, 19, in November 1992 on the, the economy stupid Bill Clinton mantra. Uh, 2003 Iraq war played somewhat well for George Bush, but he won a very close election, mainly again on, on economic issues. And I tend to think 2020 will be about the economy more than anything else. I mean, Americans are extraordinary insular people uh, in many ways, particularly in the so-called uh, flyover states. And... Um, I think he's emboldened in many ways by, by impeachment. I mean, he comes out constantly bemoaning the fact that the do-nothing Democrats, as he describes them, are getting the way of his, his, his greatness. Um, but uh, And he's extraordinarily impulsive. I mean, that's why he's got to where he is in, in many ways, because he, he broke the rules about engaging in, in, in the Republican debates where he basically, instead of all being very nice, he described all the other candidates as you know, basically useless yeah. and that he was the man who'd saved the Republican Party. I see him tweet yesterday that 95% approval rating within the party. Um, so he, uh, yeah, he's an extraordinary individual uh, in many ways and uh, I tend to think this is, you know, as, as you said, Brendan, he was presented with, an, with a, a range of issues and he plumped for, in many ways, the most dramatic one that is symptomatic of his style. Stephen? Um, I guess three things. The first is, you know, we spent a good por portion of this program talking about um, climate, climate-related issues. Um, we're uh, um, now we're talking about geopolitics. I think these two things will define our national conversation for quite some time into the future. Um, it's no doubt it's become more, more um, extreme. Um, an interesting piece of history: uh, the week after um, uh, Bill Clinton was impeached, he also ordered airstrikes. Um, so uh, there, I wouldn't discount the political um, system there. But uh, it's also important to understand that there are there are different different um, uh, perspectives on this. So uh, Neil Ferguson, who who's a, a, a right wing commentator. Um, on page uh, 16 of the um, uh, Sunday Times, he's writing that it'll be grand. Iran is um, is weak. Uh, you know, we we can take them, etc., etc. Um, I can't think of a single thing about which Neil Ferguson has been correct. He's a very interesting negative indicator, in my view. If he says it's going to be grand, I think it's not going to be grand. Um, and I, 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 the when people start banging triumphalist drums, I get extremely. I don't worried. think Neil Ferguson. He's being that triumphalist now. Let's, I don't know. Let's, <laughs> read, 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 read the text carefully. It is. It is. He is. He is saying no, no. Look at their weak. Well, they, their economy is weak, but their military is not. And yeah, I think it's important. And, to and also, David, the, the, the point is that I, I keep hearing this phrase: "Is it asymmetrical war?" Yeah, it's asymmetrical. That, that, that I mean, so this is it. I mean, the, the Iranian army is not necessarily equipped. A lot of their, a lot of their air, aircraft, maybe whatever else, would be pretty much obsolescent. Um, but that is not necessarily what they want to do. It would be if you, if you, if it was an invasion situation, you would be drawn into another horrendous asymmetric war where there will be Iraq again to the time to the power of ten. You know, uh, power twenty. It would be that kind of a. Yeah, you know, it's so it's like that old situation of that that uh, Trump would need to get lucky every time, but they would only need to get lucky. Yeah, once it would not be a conventional war. But I mean, coming back to what we were saying earlier on, I mean, the, the even if we take Trump out of this for a moment, he got a series, he got advice, and he took a decision, whatever else. But even if we take him out for a moment, I mean, the people advising him, that that lack of long term strategy just mm -hmm. fascinates me. This, you know, the, you you. you, you 
wargaming on the tabletop or whatever way you want to do it and you'll say where is this actually going what is the good end here um, which presumably they have some idea we're we're not privy to their thinking well, I, was, but presumably I was just, I was just thinking about this during the week because I was watching that interview with Wesley Clark and he was talking about going to war in Iraq in 2003 and he was asked why did you do it and he said because we couldn't think of what else to do and uh, we just had we had a terrorist problem so it should have been a, an intelligence police special forces kind of like package to deal with it but instead we turned it into a military adventure because we didn't know what to do we had this tool which was a very elaborate military uh, and you have when you have a hammer everything looks like a name yeah so they decided to get get involved in the military is there, is there, is there yeah. any sense at all that this could work this that it like he didn't go in all guns blazing boots on the ground like drone slips in takes out a crucial piece of the architecture. Uh, is there any sense that this will leave the whole situation in disarray? Oh, no, I don't think so. I mean, I think his, his plan for retaliation to Iranian retaliation, which is you know, 52 more strikes. Uh, I mean, he, he has the 1970s still in his mind, but 52 yeah. more strikes. Um, one one for, for every one for of every the hostages. The hostages. Yeah, yeah, which yeah. Is, you know, it's a bizarre obsession American presidents have had with Iran. Um, but that's not going to solve an issue either. It will, it will kind of just escalate the problem further. Grania. So this was an assassination of number two um, of, a, of a, a nation state on foreign soil by the US. So I just, mm. the audaciousness, the brazenness of that is still uh, astounds me. Um, the UN well, I gather when there were attacks on US bases, um, the Iraqis in Iraq, the Iraqis did not come out and condemn it or anything. So I think that with, with, there, there seems to be grey areas yeah, between Yeah, I guess the point I'm making, the, the Brendan, is, is, is just being clear as to where we are today at this point and what this attack actually means. You know, the UN has said it is highly likely this is a breach of international law. And it's just worth always reminding ourselves of that, that there is a legal framework around how governments <laughs> act and should act. And it's likely that that framework has been breached. Even if the guy huge. is fomenting war and dissent in half a dozen well, countries. The, the law is very across. clear and the law is very clear on that that there has to be um, a, there has to be a reasonable defence so there has to be a particular reason so there has to be an imminent attack and I'm not an international human rights lawyer but it is the, you know the, the legal framework has been written to to allow states to take action where they need to and and I think that's why the UN has said it is highly likely that this was a, a breach of international and the We're US very are saying that they, they, it was a defensive and action defense, yeah. imminent sinister and that's attack. what we heard so from Dominic Grab at, uh, that's what we heard from Dominic Grab on the news with the British when he weighed in out they've taken a long time there was yeah, yeah. Just a where's bar so they've come up with a line. Yeah, but they've now come up with a line yeah. that this is self-defence and the Americans are quite entitled to, to engage in self-defence. And Donald Trump, as we know, following in a long list of American presidents, is deeply sceptical of the UN in all its its nature. They haven't paid their fees for, you know, for yonks. And, um, you know, I think would happily pull out of the UN, but that might just be a step too far. Um, so, yeah. Sorry, just on the UN thing, I think it's interesting in all the debates about this and other incidents happening in the Middle East recently, UN is very rarely mentioned. I suspect it, is, it has become a cipher in, in, in these these. I suspect we, we will have a meeting of the Security Council next week because Russia and China yes. at this point will want it Absolutely. and certainly um, the Europeans will want it and some everybody will want a forum to try and de-escalate the situation. It probably can't do it, but it's the only forum that exists where you can possibly try to de-escalate the situation. Mary, can you explain a bit to us about Russia's position in all this? Because it is quite, uh, well, they're in a unique situation here themselves, aren't they? Brendan, I wouldn't even attempt to. (laughs) But but a few, let me just make a few points. One is, look at Syria. Um, People say it was the Russians who saved... uh, 
Assad. It wasn't really. It was Soleimani who saved yeah. Assad until the Russians came in then with their air force. So he has been crucial to a part of their strategy in the Middle East. Um, but also look where Russia is, look where Iran is. Do they really want instability on their doorstep? Um, they're quite happy to allow them, I would suspect, stir mm-hmm. up trouble, trouble. But really, they don't want this much trouble. So I think they will be trying to uh, operate, um, to moderate, to de-escalate. The Chinese have already come out with, with statements trying to de-escalate the situation. And I would say that... The and, and America's allies in the region have as well, I think, haven't they? They're all talking de-escalation. As well. Yes, they are. And, Even and the Mary, ones you, who are the stir-uppers, yes, if you like. Yes, yes. yes. If, if So if you were a gambling woman, how, how would you see this playing out now? It does frighten me. And yeah, it does it, it? Always what, what frightens you is what you can't foresee what will happen mm-hmm. next. Um, in the best of all possible worlds, if people really wanted to stay, step back, they can find a way to step back. The Iranians will, no matter what anybody says to them, because they are very independent, they will find a way to retaliate. Do they retaliate in a way that provokes the Americans uh, in a in a to escalate further or can they do something that the Americans can choose to ignore as a, a so major provocation? So that everyone gets to save face. The Iranians are seen to hit back but not not, not, not to would, damage okay. uh, vital uh, US interests. So but I would you also are hopeful that everybody no, could get a, a, a climb down here. <laughs> no, but if I were the Americans as well I would be very worried about Iraq because there were two major figures assassinated. Uh, one of them was a, was a head of a major Iraqi um, uh, forces, uh, as it were. Yeah, the, and, the Iraqi militia. Yes, yes. yeah. And I would uh, really wonder about how much longer they will be able to hang in there in Iraq. Um, well, one of the things that, Connor, I think is a very interesting contrast here is Iran can afford to play the long game and has played the long game. If you learn one lesson from Soleimani's long and, and ruthless career, it's that there was a clear and defined strategy to protect Iran's borders. Soleimani was more than capable of reaching out across the Shia-Sunni divide when it suited him. He was more than capable of collaborating with the, with the Americans, which he did and which people tend to forget, uh, to target the Taliban when that suited Iran's interests uh, and also in the fight against ISIS when that suited Iran's interests. Um, the Ayatollah doesn't have to worry about re-election, unlike Donald Trump. So we can't solve this or... or, or come with any clearer picture of what's going to happen in the future without considering what Iran's long-term interests are, because Iran thinks long-term. Uh, we're still unravelling the ramifications of the overthrow of the Shah in 1979, 40-plus years, or nearly 41 yeah. years later. Um, Iran thinks in those terms. You know, four-year uh, presidential terms and midterm elections don't tend uh, to allow that thinking in Western democracies, which sometimes is a great advantage, sometimes proves to be a disadvantage. So quite frightening in a way that we're looking at two, two sides to this dispute, neither of whom play by the kind of standard rules, I guess. Um, David, is there an Irish exposure to this problem? Well, I think as we were saying, I mean, I think there's a global exposure. If, if we have oil difficulties out of Straits of Hormuz, we'll all suffer. There, there's, a, you know, there's a global issue there as well. We have got Irish troops, obviously, in yeah, South Yeah, what Lebanon. about that story on the front page of the Sunday Independent today that the troops have been put, uh, is, uh, the Sunday Times, They're sorry. on high alert. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, it's, it's, South Lebanon is Hezbollah home, home ground. Um, now, what will the activities be there? I mean, I quite often it's 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 shooting missiles into Israel. It's a heighten, and that will provoke Israeli response. I I suspect that won't happen um, because I think they will want to keep South Lebanon quiet so that they can they can actually. There's not a big U.S. exposure in Lebanon apart from up around Beirut and around the, the embassy area. Um, so why actually provoke a response from Israel and South Lebanon? I I think our guys should be reasonably safe. Um, 
I would suspect Beirut areas in Syria, areas in Iraq will be the targets of the, the Shia militias. Okay, but it it sounds to me as if you think a cyber attack uh, on on Western soil is probably the could be the worst thing we're looking at here in the in the short term. Yeah? I think. Well, I think cyber attacks. I think the the missile attacks, the the, the low grade stuff we're seeing. Obviously, yeah. it's not low grade if somebody's shooting at you in a mortar, yeah. but it, that that kind of stuff. Um, but I think I think again at some stage in the long term they will be looking for a major retribution on this. Okay, David Murphy, thank you very much, and let's take a break. RTE Radio 1. Welcome back. Our panel are still with us Gronia Long, Mary Whelan, Stephen Kinsler, Professor Gary Murphy, and Connor Brophy. Now, this morning, Sky News are carrying pictures of orange skies over Auckland in New Zealand. That's 1,200 miles away from Australia's raging bushfires. Witnesses are describing it as apocalyptic. They're also saying their breathing has been affected by the smoke from the blazes. We're told that hours before the sun was due to set, streetlights in Auckland had to be turned on early and motors were forced to use headlights because the plumes of smoke had made the skies so dark. And that's 1,200 miles away from those uh, the bushfires in Australia that have been raging across the east of the country for weeks now. Uh, they're showing no sign of abating this weekend. The Prime Minister is finding himself under a huge amount of pressure over his handling of the crisis. I'm joined now on the line from Canberra by Marcus Mannheim of the Australian Broadcasting Corporation. Um, Marcus, welcome. Can you give us an outline of the situation as it stands right now? Hi, good evening, Brendan. Yes, sure, that's right. Um, well, I can tell you a little about where about little. I can tell you a little bit about where I am, Canberra. It's uh, the world's most polluted city at the moment, and it has been for uh, many days now. Now, this is uh, normally a pristine mountain city. It's the capital. It's just under half a million people. Normally, beautifully clear air and water. And that situation that you described in Auckland, so far away is pretty much what we've been uh, living in through for weeks. I, um, I should point out that I'm actually not that close to any fires at the moment. The, the only significant blaze is about 50 kilometres away, 75 kilometres away. But, but these fires are just so huge. They're so enormous and, and they've been burning for so long that they're affecting everything and everyone in this part of Australia, this very large part of Australia. So um, I can tell you what that means here in Canberra. It means people are wearing masks outside all the time. Um, we had a normal sunny day today, but I didn't see the sun at all. It was just a orangey-red haze. At times it gets very dark, and there's the smell of, uh, of fire, of wood fire everywhere. You just can't escape it. It doesn't matter what building you're in. The uh, smoke is getting into almost every building in the city. I think uh, most government organisations are shut. We have uh, many businesses shut. Indoor swimming pools and gyms are shut. Um, we, we've even had, uh, as an example, local hospitals that are suspending a range of procedures because uh, the smoke is affecting medical equipment. Uh, MRI, MRI machines, for example, can't work properly in these situations. And again, this is just Canberra where I am, but this is the situation that faces so much of Southeast Australia at the moment. And of course, um, Southeast Australia is where most Australians actually live, where where people who are crowded up against the Southeast coast for Mm -hmm. the most part. Um, 
So again, this city is not on fire. We're not even that close yeah. to the fire, but it's uh, it's it's affecting everyone. Marcus, we saw that this weekend. I think Sydney was going to be the hottest place on earth, and there there was a suggestion at one point. I think that uh, one of the suburbs of Sydney could be under threat from the fire. What what's happening around Sydney now? Yeah, sure. Um, well, it wasn't just this weekend. The um, Sydney. Uh, city just shy of 6 million people has been under, pretty much for a month, it's been under constant bushfire alert. There have been fires that have been breaking out in the western suburbs of the city. Uh, we just had yesterday uh, a 48 degree day, a degree, 48 degree Celsius day in the west of Sydney. It was the hottest part of the world. Uh, and that was 22 degrees Celsius higher than the January average. Uh, this is happening all over Australia. In my city of Canberra, we had uh, a 44-degree day yesterday. That's another record falling. Uh, it's about 15 degrees hotter than it normally is in, in January. And I guess we've been kind of growing inured to this sort of pattern in recent years. Each year tends to be hotter than the last. We've had um, new, re- new uh, temperature records set most years, for, for, for many years in a row now, as just with the changing climate, uh, but um, with the changing climate, but this, this season uh, has become something else. The heat is unbearable. We have strong, hot, dry winds. Um, uh, this is coming on the back of an extended drought in southeast Australia, and it has sparked this bushfire season, which is uh, just something that is uh, like nothing Australia has ever seen before. And, now, and I gather you might not have... Sorry, Mark. I gather you might not have seen the worst of it, that this is very early on in the normal bushfire season. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. So we're about, well, we're one month into summer. Um, I think uh, we have two months, not only of summer left, but no one uh, in the Bureau of Meteorology here can foresee any significant rain falling for at least two months. Uh, a massive rain downfall is the only thing that will help us at this point. Um, either two things will happen. We'll either get that rainfall or it's quite possible that these fires will only end uh, when they have essentially burnt through everything. Um, it, it's, it's, it's almost impossible to put the scale of these fires into context, but uh, there is no question that this is, um, it's not just a bad fire season in Australia. This is very much, it's a global ecological catastrophe. The amount of carbon that would be released by these fires is absolutely immense. We're talking about the, the, the amount of carbon pollution a country like Australia, which is a significant country, might uh, produce an entire year. Um, you put that again just through these fires on top of our usual pollution. It's the the amount of uh, flora and fauna species that will be affected uh, and a whole range of subspecies possibly made extinct as a result of the fires over the past month. We can't begin to count that yet because it's too hard to go into the areas that are being affected. But um, there will be very significant numbers of subspecies that uh, will no longer exist after these fires are finished. Has it focused people's attention on um, on global warming as as an issue there? 
Yeah, I'd say very much so. I think, again, as I mentioned before, Australians are used to disasters. It can be a harsh country at times. But the fact that this one is just not ending, it keeps going. There is no sign of these massive fires um, being quelled or being beaten in any way. People are genuinely scared. They haven't seen this type of destruction before. And part of the difficulty for the Prime Minister um, at the moment is that he's the leading party, the, the Liberal National Coalition in, in power in Australia, have largely been uh, a very passive force in the global climate debate. They have been... Australia has been an obstructive force in international climate negotiations for uh, for many years. I'd say about um, six years or so, they have very deliberately um, obstructed agreements to cut emissions. Um, this is largely because uh, Australia is, is a, uh, a significant coal mining and gas mining country that exports much of the world's uh, fossil fuels. Um, I think, though, at the time when most countries are looking to reduce their reliance on fossil fuels, uh, the government, government government has been making much of its plan to expand fossil fuel exports. And I think they can't really separate themselves now from that very aggressive role they've played as uh, in pushing against climate uh, climate action. And I think that is fueling some of the anger that we've had directed at the Prime Minister over the past two weeks in particular. And t- tell us now, about that done. anger against Scott Morrison. We we saw those um, yeah. I- I- images from a, a town where he went to walk about uh, last week. Cabargo, was it? Uh, yeah, that's right. It's a town quite nearby here. Yeah, yeah I think, well, he, he was, uh, I guess... Over the Christmas season, many politicians do take a short holiday. He was on a bit of an extended holiday in Hawaii, and he didn't cut or stop that holiday, despite knowing, I guess, that these fires were getting extremely serious. And by the time he came back, I think a lot of the damage for him personally was already done. He's uh, he's tried to show that he's been active since returning, by making a series of announcements, um, some of them, for example, uh, 3,000 defence reservists have been called up compulsorily to be deployed to fire-affected areas. Now, that hasn't happened before in Australia's history. We don't get those types of compulsory call-ups of reservists. He announced today a, a, a bushfire recovery agency. Um, but I think uh, some of the we, Australia is a, is a federal, federal system. We have states and a national government. Um, it's the states and their fire agencies that are currently fighting the fires. They've been openly frustrated with being left out of any of the negotiations um, about these announcements that the Prime Minister is making. And these uh, senior public servants who head these agencies, who are extremely busy fighting fires at the moment, have actually been quite directly open and political in their criticism of the Prime Minister. Uh, That, of course, doesn't usually happen. Public servants don't do that. But um, such is the anger, I think, that's been directed at the confusing role that the Prime Minister is playing uh, as he tries to show he is an active Prime Minister after being on holiday that um, I think he's only damaging himself further. I gather he's actively attempting to deflect blame away from himself today, is he? 
it's he has been attempting to remind people, I guess, that fighting fires is the state is the responsibility of the various states that are affected, uh, which is seen as casting blame and doesn't look particularly good. Um, and then at the same time, he's saying that the federal government, the national government, will play a coordinating role and a leading role. And those two messages don't really um, sync with each other. Um, again, adding to, I guess, the confusing around his confusion around his political messaging at the moment. Marcus, I, the I picture don't you... think there's any way he can successfully salvage his reputation at the moment, given how distraught and upset people are. And, and then there's that overhanging issue, of course, of uh, of climate change, because I think it's very apparent to most people that this is uh, this is real climate change, what it looks like now. Marcus, the picture you painted at the beginning of Canberra, the pictures we're, we're seeing of these these walls of flames, these enormous fires, and I gather uh, with one wind change, you can go from being <clears throat> not in danger to suddenly in danger. It's all very unpredictable. Is there an air of panic out there? How are people be behaving around the streets? Are people going about their normal lives? Or and like this idea that no, there's no I, potential it, end to it? Uh, I think that's the, the worst aspect is that um, it's not ending. Um, so in the lesser affected communities, like, for example, my city, where at the moment it's just the blight of smoke that we're dealing with, um, there, there is no, there's no forecast that this is going to end for months. And this is a whole city where shops and organisations just can't operate. Um, I'm in a new studio at the moment and the smell of bushfire smoke is everywhere. We're trying to work with um, thick masks on our faces at all times. Um, it's that's just what life is like. In the actual, the other thing is that this was uh, these fires have taken place during the summer holidays when many Australians in uh, the southeast generally head to small beach villages and towns. One of the things that has really contributed to panic is that. Many of those towns where people went to uh, were cut off by the fires because they, they grew mm-hmm. so massive so quickly. They forced roads to be closed. They um, This caused many thousands of people to be stuck by the beaches as the fires just swept through towards all of these communities. Um, we had the Navy having to extract thousands of people from some beachside places uh, with naval ships and helicopters. Uh, these towns were cut off from mobile telephone coverage for days, many of them. Some of them had their treatment plants knocked out and so they didn't have clean drinking water. Uh, There was power supply shutdowns and there was shortages of food and fuel. Now, all this has been happening over the two weeks, over the last two weeks in a wealthy developed country that yeah. doesn't deal with these issues at all. Yeah, okay. Um, and Marcus, again, it's, a, it's, it's ongoing. Yeah, it's an extraordinary picture you paint and uh, God, look after yourself. Okay, thank you very much, Marcus Mannheim from ABC Canberra and we'll take a break. RTE Radio 1. Welcome back to the show. Our panel still with us, Grony Long, Mary Whelan, Stephen Kinsler, Professor Gary Murphy and, and Connor Brophy. Um, Stephen Kinsler, you lived in Australia for a while. Mm. What did you think listening to 
to that extraordinary picture from uh, Marcus Mannheim. I mean, I, I, I have a continuing academic appointment in, in Melbourne, so I'll be going down there in August. Um, the, the scale of it is, so I travel around much of Australia, the scale of it is, is, is extraordinary. You know, people listening to this, you know, it's quite big, but it's actually bigger than the continental United States. Um, if you put the edge of Perth against the edge of Galway, the side of uh, Melbourne is, is, beyond, is beyond Moscow. So it's so that the wow. scale of it is enormous. Mm-hmm. Um, there's an area the size of Belgium on fire right now, um, and so when 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 you think about it, the 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 size of it is is remarkable. It's also remarkable in that the system, the political system, is very well served by really excellent institutions, um, and those excellent institutions have been saying climate change is an issue since the 1990s and the political system has refused to act on it. But Scott Morrison is an enormously was an enormously popular leader wasn't he? he I mean he, he was elected uh, pretty much on an anti-climate change yeah. platform um, uh, and you know the Australians for the last 10 years have really uh, resisted the idea of bringing in carbon taxes and that kind of thing um, but I think the truth about it is it doesn't matter who's Prime Minister right now uh, this is a geopolitical event that is going to uh, get worse not just in Australia, but also uh, across the rest of the world. Like there's a, there's a lot of stuff about um, um, flooding causing uh, a reduction in the living standards of something with 50 million people in places like Bangladesh. Mm-hmm. So uh, you know this is just what our generation has to deal with yeah. now. And I think I think what why we're resonating with it uh, uh, is obviously the scale, the horrific pictures, but also the fact that this is like like uh, as the caller said, the this is a this is one of the wealthiest places in the world. And they're totally, totally unable to deal with this because of the sheer scale of it. Um, they don't have the planes. They don't have the ability to actually stop the fire. Um, and given all of their wealth, their extraordinary resources, the fact that they're not able to do that is genuinely uh, frightening. And, you know, if we, if we had something similar here, it would probably be in, in the order of flooding or something well, we like have, that. Yeah. Um, and we will have that, as, as we know. Um, uh, we don't have... Uh, the resources put into it because we haven't had the conversations around it yet, I don't think. I think that's really key. Okay, so we have uh, several things to do both in Ireland and across the UK, which is, first of all, accept the scale and the size of this issue, accept that it means fundamental systems change and then get planning and get going. And we have to put together adaptation plans, in other words, to protect our citizens. And clearly that hasn't been done. Um, And also we need, in in this case, in terms of Australia, because of the scale and the size of it. And then we need to put mitigation plans in place, which is about reducing our, our emissions and our CO2 emissions. There was an absolutely brilliant piece written by one of Australia's best writers, Richard Flanagan, in the New York Times over the weekend. And he described this as um, climate change is Chernobyl. And what he meant by that was not about the scale of of the lives that will be lost or anything like that. But he said it was... Uh, um, uh, Mikhail Gorbachev described Chernobyl as the beginning of the end of the Soviet Union's political system. So what this really means now for Australia, and I would argue more globally, is that our political system, which is dependent on carbon, which is based on fossil fuels, where the political system and the financial system are completely interlinked, we have to stop it. And there was a really good um, uh, series of remarks made by the outgoing governor of the Bank of England, Mark Carney, who has said, we now need to justify investment in fossil fuels. Now, that's a game changer. When, the, mm-hmm. when one of the most famous bankers in the world says, we need to stop putting our money 
potentially into fossil. We need to stop putting our money into fossil fuels. And the I European think he's Investment Bank, from a pragmatic point of view, that in it could be wiped in out if you invest ways. in Absolutely. In, in well, the, the price of carbon is going to go up yeah. by one hundred and sixty percent. But there's a bigger there picture is. here, and it's the human picture. So I think you know, if, if Australia doesn't learn from this, and if we collectively don't learn from this in terms of understanding our economy now has to decarbonize and our political system has to drive that. You know, it's all very well us wringing our hands, but if we don't react to it, we're going to we're going to lose the battle. Well, okay, I, I, Gary Murphy. Well, I don't disagree with any of that, but there is a long-standing view amongst people that, amongst some political leaders, you know, these are my people, so I will follow them. Um, and, the, uh, you know, if you look at Trump, if you look at Morrison, who do they appeal to? They appeal to disenfranchised people, those who have lost industries. And that's why coal is popular in places like West Virginia and in, in parts of Australia. Uh, because, you know, people depend on it for their livelihood. They depend on it to have a reasonable standard of life. And, you know, the re- sad reality is, Bangladesh is, you know, is a far away place, you know, and I have to sit there, I have to get on with my own life, trying to survive, you know, bring my kids through secondary school, through college, etc. And it's the, it's the politics of the immediate. And I'm afraid I would be rather sceptical. Will there be any substantial changes on, on the lines growing your points out? Because um, but there's no sustainable, there's term. no sustainable political majority in doing that. All of the voters that he appealed to and the other people appealed mm-hmm. to are in declining demographics. Mm-hmm. So, you know, Greta Thunberg may not have a vote yet. But that's where the future is, literally. And and I think as well as that, uh, uh, the, the economic case for, de- for, for energy transition is now beginning to be made. So in other words, if you talk about the disenfranchised and the poorest people, poorest people in Dublin and the poorest people in Ireland are paying more for their energy than they should and than they ought to if, they're, if we're fossil fuel dependent. If I told you the price of bread was going to increase by 160% in this decade, you would say we need to fix this. That's what's about to happen to the price of carbon and it could go up more given what we talked about in geopolitical um, wars over the next number of years. So we have to get ahead of this and our politicians need to understand that we have to get ourselves off carbon. We have to change our economy. Unfortunately, we only have a decade to do it. May Whelan? I'm coming back to our election this year and I do think that we need to start a national dialogue on the sort of country we want and what we're going to pay for it. And this is the sort of thing that it shouldn't become party political. It should be the sort of discussion we've had uh, after we've lost uh, EU referendums and we needed to uh, pass them. The sort of uh, dialogues we've had around uh, referenda, that's the sort of dialogue we need to build a consensus. And we're good at that. Yeah. Stephen, very, pra- very practically, if you want to see that the government is serious, look at what they uh, say they're going to do. If every party uh, committed to triple the budget of the SEAI, for example, uh, that would be a very, very strong signal that they were indeed taking what you were saying seriously. OK, thank you, Stephen. And I want to thank all the panel for coming in this morning. And that's about all we have time for. Today's show was produced by Annette Egan. Emily Hurley is our broadcast coordinator. Katrina McFadden and Michelle Brown are our researchers. Jamie Doyle was on sound and our series producer is Rachel Graham. But I want to finish today um, and give the last word to one of Marion's listeners, Mary. And Mary emails to say... Marion was a much-loved national treasure whose influence extended well beyond the island of Ireland. Listening this morning, I'm struck by the great appreciation for the high standards she brought to everything she did, something that was also true of Gay Byrne and for whom there has also been huge public admiration. If there is any positive to come from these two great losses, it might be that we should all openly acknowledge that high standards do matter, that we as a nation appreciate them and know that they can bring great rewards to us all. Would, it, would that not be a fitting tribute to two of the greatest contributors to our time?